0: Hello and welcome to the Winston Marshall Show with me, Winston Marshall. I sat down with Matt Goodwin, political scientist, professor, and host of one of Britain's biggest substacks, mattgoodwin.org. I wanted to have the low-down, the comprehensive conversation about immigration and migration in the UK. And this is exactly what that conversation is. We discuss what the lay of the land is with migration at the moment, what the projections are for the future. It's one of the most divisive, but also important issues in the country, especially going into the 2024 general election. So where the Tories failed, what are Labour going to do about it? How does this impact the housing crisis? How does this impact the wallets of everyday Britons? What are the impacts of the future of British culture? And what does it mean for Britain going forward? We discuss all of this and much, much more. You're going to find this conversation fascinating. Before we hear from Matt, I humbly ask that if you want to support the show, one thing you can do that helps me is to press the subscribe button. If you do that, I can bring in more guests and we can explore more topics that you want to hear about. Thank you very much. Without further ado, Matt Goodwin. Thank you for watching the Winston Marshall Show. Matt, we're twenty twenty-four, eight mm. years on from Brexit, where polling suggested the number two reason we pe- the people of Britain voted for. Brexit was sovereignty. Number one was immigration. Then net immigration was 330,000 a year. Last year, it was 700,000 a year. You've just done a a, a picture of what it's going to be like in Britain 20 years after Brexit in Mm. 2036. Can Mm. you paint that picture for me?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, as you rightly say, the vote for Brexit for the people who pushed it through was about lowering overall migration. And we should remember that is also what Britain's politicians and leaders said at the time, at both 2017 and the 2019 general elections, both Theresa May and Boris Johnson said the goal was to lower migration. We need to remember that. And of course, what we saw was the opposite. It Basically, the Conservative Party put mass immigration on steroids. So it went up to about 700,000, something we've never seen before in this country mm-hmm. and we've now been transformed into a country of mass migration and we can come back and discuss that but if you look at where the trend is going mm-hmm. over the next 12 years between 2024 and 2036 uh, we just have projections from the office for national uh, statistics very reliable independent uh, rigorous um, and they show that our population will now grow by 6.6 million uh people million of those will be because of migration. In other words, immigration is now going to drive about 92% of Britain's population growth over the next 12 years. So what you're looking at essentially is the population growing by something equivalent to five cities the size of Birmingham, or you're basically 70% of the way to another London, basically. And the other thing that I would say about that change, and we can come back and talk about the detail, is the pace of this population change or demographic change is going to be something that the, the Brits have never seen before. And I'll just give you one stat to put it in perspective. Mm. If you look at how long it took us to go from 50 million people to 60 million people, it was basically about 55 years, so about half a century. Um, in a, In about half that time, about 20 years, we're going to go from 65 million to about 75 million. So in about, you know, 20 years, we're going to see this: the population grow by somewhere around 10%, which is unprecedented, which people are nowhere near ready for. Nobody is really aware of just how much Britain's immigration policy has been transformed. And my view is that this is going to generate a considerable degree of concern and alarm, um, not only because it flies in the face of everything that Brexit was about, not only because it's going to erode people's trust in the political system and their leaders, but also fundamentally because it is going to test our social contract, the social fabric of our society like never before. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe we can unpack a little bit of where we are at the moment, because
0: mm. of course that those are trajectories. I would mm. say, as from the famous film, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, nothing is written and things can be changed, and maybe we can get into some policy that might mm. change that. Um, can you paint a picture for me and listeners of immigration in the UK in 2024? How does it break down? So the 700,000, let's mm. say, mm-hmm. 2023, mm-hmm. what proportion of that is small boats, Ukrainians, Hong Kongers, people coming in students, mm. Afghans, there's a bunch of different groups coming yeah. in. Can you can you paint that picture?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing to say, by the way, on the, uh, the forecast point is if you look at all forecasts about Britain's population and immigration over the last 20 years, um, they've been wrong 93% of the time. Mm. And they've been wrong because they've underestimated the level of migration. So everything that I'm talking to you about today is probably on the conservative side. Okay, so let's just keep that in mind. Um, What's the immigration story in Britain? Well, I think really, you know, the first thing to say is there are two big points for, for listeners to keep in mind. We've never seen levels of net migration of the kind that we've seen now. So 700,000 over the last two years. We've had 1.2 million people come into Britain just over the last two years. In the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw net migration rocket to 700,000. It was only 300,000 at the time of the Brexit referendum. It was only 100,000 when Tony Blair came into power in 1997. The second thing about that migration is it's mainly coming from outside of Europe. So when we think about migration in Britain, we often, you know, for much of the last 20 years, we thought about, you know, Polish plumbers and Romanian workers and Bulgarians and so on. Well, kind of forget all of that, because what we're now seeing are entirely different flows of migration. Mm. So a lot more Indians, a lot more Nigerians, a lot more Pakistanis, a lot more Ukrainians because of the war in Ukraine. But basically a lot more people from outside of Europe. That's the other key thing to to remember. And if you take um, the two million or so people that have come in over the last three years or so, um, if you look at who they are, only about fifteen percent of them one five, only about fifteen percent are actually coming in on what we'd call skilled worker visas. So you know, when Boris Johnson became prime minister, he famously said, "Look, we're going to have an Australian-based." point system we're going to get the best of the best we're going to have high skill high wage highly selective migration that's going to you know bring engineers and scientists and inventors and people with phds and it's going to be this amazing powerhouse well forget all of that as well because what basically boris johnson and the conservative party did is they brought in a completely different kind of migration which is low wage low skill non-selective forms of migration which uh, takes more out of the economy than it puts in. So, fifteen percent coming for work. The rest, international students. We've now got record numbers of international students and their dependents. So, their relatives, their wives, husbands, and children. Where does the students' percentage? What does that come out at? So, we've got about uh, somewhere around two two to three hundred thousand international students and over one hundred thousand of their relatives mm-hmm. so de- what we'd call dependents mm-hmm. then you've is got that usually wives or is
0: it including parents and children
1: uh not par- not usually parents usually wives husbands and children sorry why
0: why yeah, yeah usually spouses well. yeah, yeah. yeah yeah
1: exactly and um beyond beyond student migration then we've got um uh the relatives of workers coming in we've got people coming in on humanitarian routes so from ukraine or Um, Hong Kong. And then we've got since 2018, about 112,000 people entering the country illegally on small boats crossing the channel. The best estimate today, however, is that we've probably got somewhere around a million illegal migrants in the country who have been here over many years. But the small boat problem represents about 112,000. But this is really a story actually about legal migration. So, So of the you know, 1.2 million people that have come in over the last two years, most of those people are coming legally because the conservatives have liberalized the whole system. So they're coming in on work visas, or they're coming in as a relatives of workers, or they're coming into the universities, Mm. or they happen to have a, a husband or a wife or a parent who's coming in to be a student, or they're coming in on these humanitarian routes. But but in short, Boris Johnson liberalized the whole system. The numbers went through the roof. And we're all now living with the consequences of that. Can you tell me about how that distributes across the
0: UK? Are there specific regions of the UK that people are coming to? How does it affect, let's say, a Londoner different to uh, someone in Scotland? How does it affect someone differently in Birmingham to Newcastle?
1: Yeah, I mean, historically, migration is always centred on the big cities, particularly London. But it's also now increasingly flowing out of the big cities into you know smaller towns, uh, university towns, um, because we've got a lot more international students. And you're feeling and witnessing the rapid change in migration in lots of areas of the country where, you know, historically, you might not have come across much migration at all. Um, The university story, to me, being a university academic, is the most revealing. And it also tells us just how the systems change. So. There'll be lots of people listening to this saying, well, hang on, Matt, what's the problem with international student migration? Don't we want lots of people coming in to go to Oxford and Cambridge and the prestigious Russell Group institutions because they're doing PhDs and they're going to become scientists and and they're going to stay in the country? Um, That's a nice vision of what international student migration is. And it's a vision that's shaped by... Many of the people who write about immigration in the newspapers or they study it at universities because their experience of student migration is exactly that. Mm. It's what they witness at these these good universities. The problem is... What we now have is a very different kind of student migration, which is people going into non-elite, non-prestigious universities, second, third-tier universities. They've often, um, they're have often they often coming to do one-year MA programs, maybe 18-month MA programs. Um, once they're in, they're in. So they've got the right to work. There's no salary threshold. There's no skill threshold. Mm. They can work, do whatever they want. And they can stay in the country beyond their period of study. I mean, I
0: thought there was a salary threshold. Didn't Rishi just bring in a new law that's up the... For skilled workers, yeah, but not for
1: international students. So what we're doing basically is we are creating what uh, has been called the Deliveroo economy. So we're encouraging lots of low-skill, low-wage migrant workers Um, some of whom are studying at university, many of whom, by the way, drop out of their study because they're using that degree to get into the country and then they basically stay in the country, not all of them, but some of them. And we're we're, we're kind of perpetuating this economic problem that we have, which is an economy that isn't really now built around encouraging high-skill, high-wage migration, but low-skill, low-wage migration. And look, the bottom line is, if you actually look at the academic research on what's happening, not just in Britain, but across Europe, the basic problem here is Britain is now encouraging the exact kind of migration low skill low wage migration from outside of Europe which has consistently been shown by studies in the Netherlands in Sweden in Denmark and elsewhere to take more out of the national economy than to put in mm-hmm. and this is the this is the key issue so when we talk about yeah. you know the, the economics of this new migration the evidence to suggest that it should be driving GDP driving GDP per head just isn't there. It's not a good formula. Well, of I, I
0: want to get into the economics, yeah. but there's just a couple of things I think. In sure. Just
1: painting the picture. Yeah.
0: Uh, firstly, it's that I think it's important to think about the British birth rate and de- dem- demography is generally speaking mm-hmm. of Britain because that's the context in which these people are uh, moving to Britain. So, uh, and and also the, the the falling birth rate and and I, I wondered mm. if if what you could add to me in terms of painting yeah. that picture. Yeah.
1: So if you look at the, you know, the replacement rate is 2.1. We've not been over that uh, since the 1970s. We're currently hovering at about Mm 1.5. So what has happened over the last 20 years is immigration has become the main driver of population growth, not what demographers would call natural change, just people, you know, having kids. Some people dying other people having more kids and so on. So the natural change is no longer the driver of Britain's population growth. Immigration is. Mm-hmm. And you can see that reflected in you know, a number of different stats that are coming through in the in the data. So for example, um, if you look at schools and you look at the percentage um, uh, if you look at the number of schools where white British kids are now, a minority it's coming up to about 23 percent and if you look at the uh, share of schools um uh where uh lots of kids are not even able to speak english the numbers have doubled over the last 10 20 years so these are little that would in- be min- mainly london and let's say the big yeah, city yeah th- th- these, th- these are indications of what's coming so this is the sort of beginning of this this migration wave if you like mm-hmm. um so what's happening is among the British population the the birth rate is is nowhere near replacement but among many of the migrant communities and people who are coming over um the birth rate is mu- is much higher so for example among British muslim communities it's it's closer to 2 mm-hmm. i think just actually a little bit above that and if you look at Europe as a whole mm-hmm. uh, among you know for example non-muslim Europeans the the birth rate is 1.5 um, among um, Muslims in Europe, it's 2.5. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we're seeing in Britain is, is sort of reflected in the European story. So low birth rates among, um, you know, the, the, the native population and then much higher birth rates among minority and, and migrant communities who also, by the way, are younger anyway. So that pace of change is going to accelerate as we go forward.
0: Can you just elaborate a little bit for me on the European view? like If we can zoom out a little bit Mm. to the macro, what's going on in Europe for the context of migration in the UK?
1: Yeah, so I I, I would view immigration in Britain as part of the broader demographic um, challenge and and migration challenge that's facing Europe. So we're seeing um, a large influx of people, typically from sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, elsewhere in the world, who are often entering Europe, uh, either on humanitarian routes or simply illegally and who are pressuring um european borders you know european solidarity social cohesion and if you look at what's happening or projected to happen over the next let's say between today and 2050 you do get some pretty startling statistics so to give you a couple of examples the pew research center in uh, north america which is very reliable independent rigorous uh, research uh, organization um, even before covid even before the current refugee crisis the return of the refugee crisis that's sweeping through europe um, pew had forecast that between today and 2050 um, the overall share of europe that is uh muslim is going to increase from about five percent to about fifteen percent mm-hmm. but in some countries you're going to see a much more dramatic uh, shift. Sweden is going to go from about 8% Muslim to closer to 31% Muslim. And this is under a high migration scenario, which I would argue is what Europe has got. So high levels of ongoing migration into Europe. France will be about, I think, 20%, 20%, Germany about 20%. uh, The UK will see a threefold increase as well. Hmm. Um, And that's not to pick out one group. It's just to say that if you look at the migration flows into Europe, much of the migration now is coming from places you know Afghanistan and Eritrea north north africa sub saharan africa and so on so we are likely to see not just more migration but more religiously culturally um identity distinctive forms of migration mm-hmm. if that makes sense and i think that's going to pressure europe in a big way and we're already seeing the political p- political effects of that When you look at the ongoing rise of people like Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. Marine Le Pen in France, Georgia Maloney in Italy, you know, I've been looking at national populist parties for 20 years. They're stronger than they've ever been. And Mm -hmm. why is that? Because of the politics of migration, because lots of Europeans understandably are getting very nervous and anxious about the pace and the scale of this change, and also the capacity of their countries to actually integrate newcomers. Mm.
0: Progressives listening might think... Okay, there's a bunch of people from outside Europe coming to Europe, coming to the UK. The increase in Muslim population, I, 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 they might not see any problem in that. So I guess one important conversation to have is the trade-offs. What are the downsides of uh, immigration? And and you've suggested that we'll get to the cultural stuff, but let's start with economics because mm. th- th- this is, I think, very well, th- b- black and white. And and um, th- there's perhaps a lot to it. You've made the link between the problems of immigration to the UK and the housing crisis. Mm. That seems to be to be salient. There are others, but maybe we could start with the impact mm. of immigration on the British housing crisis.
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is mass immigration is bad economics. Okay, so that's, and I think the evidence backs me up on this. Just before we get to housing, if you look at all the research that's been done over the last five to ten years, from the University of Amsterdam to Denmark and Sweden, they all point to the same conclusion. Relying on low-wage, low-skill migration from outside of Europe is a net fiscal cost, not a net benefit to Western economies. Break that down for me. So, well, what I mean is that most people who are coming in are taking more out of the economy... Uh, than they're contributing, because typically, they're not working in high skilled jobs, they're not generating lots of tax revenue, they've probably got more more children, which means they're more of a burden on schools and the NHS and so on. In Britain, for example, for every child that goes through a primary school, it's about £6,000 a year. Um, but you know, so when you look at the pressures of, of on public services, they're enormous, particularly given that public services are already underfunded. So, you know, what I'm saying is, the kind of migration that we've got is not an economic plus. Yes. Well, now, the... on the specific issue of housing, just to yeah. give you an example, so I've had a very curious debate with people in Britain, where liberal progressives will say immigration is wonderful, diversity is only a net plus, and you know, let's not talk about any areas where this might be, this narrative might be uh, undermined. Um, well, one area where that's obviously not true is housing, where we now have a lot more demand uh, than we have supply. Um, so Britain currently is building around 200,000 homes every year. Um, everybody accepts that's not uh, nowhere near enough to meet demand from the British population, which is why the government's target is to build 300,000 homes a year. That is the government target. But that target is based on us running net migration levels of 170,000 our net migration levels are 700,000. So what that means is we basically, if you look at research by the Center for Policy Studies, among others, we need to basically be building somewhere between 320,000 and 550,000 homes every year for the next 15 years just to basically keep up with the pressure from migration, okay? So we are, you know, between now and 2036, we're going to need somewhere around five million homes uh, for people coming into the country. Now, um, you know, I've got a colleague um, uh, who's pointed this out, that we could build a a city in terms of housing the size of Nottingham every year for the next 15 years, and we'd still need to find homes for about 80,000 people. So, So nobody is being real with the British people about the scale of the housing crisis. The the evidence is very clear on this i'm very unpopular for pointing this out on social media and elsewhere but if you read serious independent rigorous institutes migration advisory committee the migration observatory at oxford they all basically say the same thing which is it is clear that mass immigration is is worsening the housing crisis by pushing up rents in places like london where on average 20 people go for the same flat um, and by driving up house prices so for every one percent increase in the uh, uh population you get a one percent increase in house prices basically so hmm. you know it's 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 it it's it the evidence I think is clear and then when you get to the you know the most need needy um people in society people who really do need help through social housing the vast majority of social housing in London um uh lots of social housing in London I should say is is going to people who are not even born in britain so if you look for example at uh, the stats in london um you know around about half of social housing in london is going to people who weren't born in britain about 70 mm-hmm. percent of somali families in london are in social housing to give you one stat and so imagine what this looks like if you're in your 20s or your 30s and you're a young professional let's say you're a british kid you've played you've played by the rules you've gone to university you've got a degree you've come into westminster you're working you know in politics or a you know professional company you're paying let's say a thousand pounds a month to live in a pretty um, rubbish flat where you're probably living next to some dubious characters in a neighborhood that's pretty depressing um, and declining uh, on the periphery of london you've got to get up in the morning take the train into town you've got to go past all this nice social housing in more affluent neighborhoods which turns out isn't actually um being lived in by by people um you know it, who are british and um that's going to that's going to suck for a lot of young british graduates in fact i work with a lot of young british graduates and i know that's exactly how they feel and what we haven't really got here in this country is a serious sensible national conversation about how migration is impacting not just housing but impacting public services is impacting levels of crime impacting social cohesion impacting multiculturalism and the extent to which it's working, uh, impacting national identity, impacting shared values. We're not allowed to actually have a serious conversation about migration because the two big parties are now basically saying the same thing, which is let's keep having more of it. Mm. Let's not question it. Let's keep having more of it. Now, why do they say that? Because they, firstly, on the left, it's about virtue signaling and moral righteousness. But for conservatives, it is fundamentally about supplying the economy with lots of bodies to keep big business mm, happy mm. to keep cheap to keep labor migrant labor as cheap as possible to keep profits and consumption high and then what happens as we sit here in early 2024 well we get the economic data which says well after 20 years of mass migration britain's in recession but more importantly than that our gdp per head numbers m- meaning productivity per person are are dismal and mm. they have been dismal for a long period of time now all the british people are told is Mass migration equals good economy, Mm. right? So have more migration, you get a better economy, you get better public services. Clearly, that is not happening. What we've had is 20 years of mass migration. We have a weak economy, which is not growing, not productive, um, not innovative. We remove any incentive for companies to invest in um, British kids or British workers and all of that. And we just go round and round in this Ponzi scheme, and everybody too scared to call it out, and everybody is too scared to challenge it, even though the evidence is quite clear. Mass immigration is bad economics. I, I'll say
0: one thing: it's not just young professionals that you give that example. I used to work in Bow in East London, and the uh, priority housing has been given to large, uh, p- uh, large amounts of people from the Bengali community, mm. which means that working class. White Brits have been pushed out where their their mothers and grandmothers might still live in Bow. They are no longer able to buy uh, housing there, so they end up getting pushed further out mm. of London. And it's not a coincidence that that part of Bow is also where there are some BNP pubs. It's where the a kind of a people's uh, you might want to say far right mm. re, re, uh, reaction to to those groups, mm. even when it's actually the policy perhaps that they are so infuriated with
1: um well they should be frustrated with the policy because it's completely ridiculous i do have a very clear and strong view on this which is that it is the job of the nation state fundamentally to prioritize the people who have contributed to that nation state over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. That is my one of my founding principles in my personal politics. So when we have a system whereby we're able to find housing for senior li- lieutenants in Hamas, as an example, mm-hmm. who are living in North London in, and were living in social housing, then got access to right to buy, and we've got you know British kids struggling to get onto the housing ladder, we need to talk about that as a society, and we need to talk about how is it mm. that we created a politics that even made that... Possible And why are we not allowed to talk about it? Or at least when we do talk about it, why are we often talking about it outside of the mainstream public square? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think many people are, I hope, beginning to see that this link between mass migration and housing is a very, very troubling one.
0: Now, you you just published some statistics on housing percentage ownership. And though Mm. it's plummeted, particularly for the younger age Mm. groups since the 70s. In the last five, ten years, it seems to be picking up again. Mm. What do you make of that?
1: Well, I think it's too early to say. Um, I think probably there are, you know, some things going on there in terms of intergenerational wealth transfer, mum and dad passing money down. We had a number of schemes during COVID, you know, we changed stamp duty and things like that, mm-hmm. which probably encouraged people into the housing market. We're certainly not building anywhere near enough yeah. housing to for that to accommodate for that slight uptick. But basically if you're between 18 and 40 compared to your predecessors in you know past generations you know you've been screwed yeah. basically you are not on the housing ladder and until you inherit some housing or you inherit some wealth in order to get onto that housing ladder you are going to be having a very difficult time indeed and i think the evidence on that is pretty clear that also goes some way i think to explaining why only 10% of zoomers from gen z Um, And only about, I think, 15, 20 percent of millennials are planning to vote for the Conservative Party Mm. because, you know, they're looking at a party that has essentially chosen again after Brexit to prioritize mass migration over fixing these long term problems within British society. Housing is one. The NHS is another. Social care is another. Universities is, is another. Consistently in all of these issues, right, mass immigration is used as a sticking plaster to cover the deeper problems and challenges that we face as a society. We are never going to have, look, let be blunt, you can have mass immigration or you can have available, affordable housing. You can't have both. It's the
0: same with the NHS. But I would say that there's one classic rejoinder on the issue of the NHS, which is that more than 17% of the NHS are workers from overseas. That amounts to 264,000 People,
1: hmm.
0: so it is not unfair to say that actually we need immigrants. Well, the
1: NHS certainly needs immigrants. Well, I think we need some uh, immigrant workers in the NHS, but I think we've also, I think those numbers also reflect some very bad policy choices that we've made as a society. And one example is how we've capped the number of uh, British kids who can train and become doctors and medical professionals in the NHS. We've never expanded. Seriously, the number of available places for British kids to enter the NHS we've always kept the numbers down. Why? because it's expensive to train people to go into the NHS so what we've what we've done is a moral choice basically, but what we've done is we've said it's easier to recruit cheaper uh workers, cheaper doctors, cheaper nurses from abroad. We've taken them away from countries that I would argue need them more than we do in some respects, and we've said this is a choice it's easier to do this than actually train. British kids to do these jobs. And I think that too, again, reflects the way in which migration is used as a short-term fix to avoid dealing with longer-term problems. It's same the same the exactly the same in social care. Rather than pay people more money, rather than reform the social care system to encourage, you know, more Brits to go into it, you know, including, by the way, the half a million Brits that we've got um, currently losing dignity and meaning in the welfare system, uh, rather than Raise wages, improve conditions. It's easier to import cheap workers again from abroad, and their relatives, by the way. So that also has been driving net migration upwards because we're not actually making any of the tough decisions, and the Conservatives are partly to blame for this. But the Labour Party, you know, under Tony Blair, also uh, made similar decisions. We are now hooked. It's like a, we're like a drug addict. I mean, we are hooked on mass migration because we are too terrified or unable to think about how we might fix these long-term structural problems in a more interesting, innovative, and I would also add, moral way. Listen, we're going to go into...
0: Well, I want to hear what the Matt Goodwin policy ideas are to deal with those. But before we do, I don't think we've fully really mapped out the scale Mm. of the situation and and the issue. Mm. Let's talk about the cultural impact Mm. of immigration. So Sadiq Khan is constantly saying, diversity is our greatest strength. Mm-hmm. I'm quite old-fashioned and I happen to think that unity is our greatest strength. Mm-hmm. We are a nation now which is uh, successfully multi-ethnic, I would say unsuccessfully multi-cultural. Uh, what are the cultural impacts of immigration?
1: Well, um, mass migration of the sort that we are currently living through is leading to a rapid pr- Growth or proliferation in the number of languages, identities, cultural practices, and beliefs uh, within our society. So, the question then becomes how do you unify people around a common national story, around a shared identity, around a shared sense of values, a shared sense of history, a shared sense of purpose? Um, I would actually disagree with Sadiq Khan. I think, you know, diversity is our strength. To say that a country is welcoming of diversity is fine. But to say that diversity is the bedrock of who we are, of our national identity, is like saying we have no real identity of our own. Mm. And many people in this country feel very strongly about the fact that we do have a distinctive history. We have a distinctive identity. We have a distinctive set of values. We have a distinctive way of life that can be traced back over thousands of years And they do not want to simply reshape that, all of that, around these universal liberal platitudes like diversity is our strength. And this is an important point about multiculturalism. So when people say multiculturalism has failed, which David Cameron and Angela Merkel and Nicholas sarkozy said 10 years ago more than 10 years ago and they were absolutely right to say it then and suella braverman was absolutely right to say it more recently Although the- and, and and what's interesting there was the reaction to those moments yeah quite so so 14 years ago people said you know what actually against the backdrop of islamist terrorist plots riots etc you've got a point something's not right here in 2024 2023 we weren't even able to have that conversation. Everybody just shut it down. How dare you say multiculturalism Mm. has failed? Now, be clear, what what Soella Braverman was saying was not our multi-ethnic society has failed. What she was saying was the policy of multiculturalism has failed. Why has it failed? Because it is a policy framework that prioritizes group difference over commonality. It encourages, it incentivizes minority groups to retain and promote their distinctive identities, religions, cultural practices at the expense of integration. And it's even worse than that. What we're living through is not just a broken model of multiculturalism, but what we might call asymmetrical multiculturalism. Let me just unpack that. It's an Mm. important point. If you're part of the majority group, what you have to do now, according to the sort of new ruling class, the new elite who, who rule over us, is you either have to not talk about your identity, your history, your culture, uh, who you are, or if you do have to talk about those things, they really need to be reshaped around these universal liberal themes of diversity, Mm. multiculturalism. Uh, You see it at every major sporting tournament, right? We're kind of incapable of talking about what is it that makes Britain so wonderful. We have to actually reduce everything to this kind of um, story about multiculturalism and story about diversity. That is an example of asymmetrical multiculturalism. What we say to the majority is you you are not allowed to promote and celebrate your identity and your history and your values. Even worse, what we say through things like critical race theory and so on, what we're teaching kids in school, is you sh- you should actually view that as a source of shame and embarrassment. There is something wrong about being british or english or from the west and we we've had these debates for many years i don't need to rehash them but it, they're very visible in schools where we're now actively teaching kids more about what's wrong with our history than what we got right
0: mm-hmm.
1: so so the majority are said are, are told look your identity is problematic at best you have to reshape it around universal themes minorities on the other hand are told to celebrate mm. to promote their identity to protect their identity Tell us about your wonderful heritage. Tell us about your wonderful history. Tell us about your wonderful values. Oh, that's different. That's novel. Tell us about it. Now, where that leads us is in is, is towards a very fragile, divisive place where a much larger number of people feel unable to talk about who they are. And minorities are increasingly emboldened not to sort of integrate into wider society, but to retain. Their own identity, and what worries me here is, as we saw in the aftermath of October seventh, is what you what you then are doing is you're creating a lot more room for radical Islamists, for extremists, um, in alliance with the kind of radical left who are saying, "Look, identity politics is the way forward. You know, embrace your identity. You know, tell us why you're different. Tell us what's wrong with the West." And we are undermining our society from within. And at the Mm. heart of it is this idea of asymmetrical multiculturalism. So what do you do? How do you fix it? Well, you start by completely reshaping and revising the school curriculum. Mm. You say, okay, if you're going to tell us that we got this wrong, then let's start talking about what other parts of the globe got wrong as well. If you're going to tell us that we need to think about the negatives in British history and who we are, then let's spend just as much time talking about the positives positives and all the things we got right. If you're going to tell minority communities they should be proud of their heritage and their history, well, we should spend just as much time saying this is what you're expected to do uh, in order to integrate into British society. These are the laws you're expected to uphold. This is the way of life you're expected to conform to. And we are not doing any of those things. We used Mm. to. I've been looking at British immigration policy for a long time. In the 2000s, we used to talk about something called integration, mm. and we used to talk about what was then called community cohesion. Mm. In the aftermath of riots in Northern England, the government said, "You know what? We can't go on like this. We can't have people um, taking to the streets and engaging in in violence and um, urban disputes and, and and riots and so on." Not just the
0: North of England; that was the whole country. Yeah,
1: exactly. We need a we need a serious strategy for integration. Now, I'm personally very skeptical about integration policy, because I think when you've got very high rates of mass migration, it doesn't really matter what you're doing when it comes to integration. It's just going to be very, very difficult to hold everybody together. But today, we're not even talking about integration and cohesion. After October 7th, I did not see a serious frontline politician come out and say, guys, we've got a bit of a problem here. We've got hundreds of thousands of people inside our community actively celebrating Islamist terrorism, Murder, mayhem and violence committed against Jews. We have a major problem in our society. We need to talk about it. And you saw it, by the way, uh, Winston, in the aftermath of the murder of um, uh, the MP David Ames, when when suddenly everybody went conspicuously uh, quiet. And after the recent decision by a member of parliament, Mark Mike, Freer, Freer, Mike Freer, to stand down uh, as uh, an MP because of threats from radical Islamists. The 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 failures of multiculturalism are staring us in the face, but no frontline politician is is apparently able to stand up and say we we need to completely reshape how we deal with this. I find it,
0: you've made a very interesting observation there, looking at how Suella and how she's treated now for criticizing multiculturalism, but David Cameron did the same ten years ago, and, and and as did Angela Merkel. And look at the change in the reaction to that, and you see the same. Mm with what's happened to Freya David Amos, if you rewind back to the 7-7 bombings, the reaction was, okay, well, at least we t- we acknowledged that we had an Islamist problem. There's, um, they, you know, started Prevent program. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the Manchester Arena bombing, um, the reaction w- was different to then. It was like, love, not hate, don't look back in anger. Yeah. But at least then there was conversations. There was like, oh, there are 22,000 mm-hmm. jihadis in Britain. At least there was a, at least there was some conversation. Now that's gone. Yeah, no, I don't uh, think we're... It's, really it's like, really like we've made it politically incorrect. It, mm. The politically incorrectness has only increased in that decade. Why is that?
1: It, well, the, first, the answer is because the left has radicalised. That's the answer. So the left-leaning graduate class has radicalised over the last 15 years, and they also dominate the institutions. So what has happened is they've imposed the new religion, which is diversity, the new religion has been imposed on the rest of society through their dominance over the institutions. This is not a conspiracy. It's just, you look at B- the BBC, mm. large parts of the media, the civil service, museums, galleries, both political parties, they are overwhelmingly dominated by elite university oh, graduates. I can do a whole hour on the music industry who, for you. In the music industry, publishing industry, mm. universities, which I know very well. And what's happened is, as the graduate classes move very left on these issues, partly to disassociate themselves from Brexit and Trump and so on, they've basically doubled down on social liberalism. They've embraced this radical, woke progressivism that's now become a really important part of who they are, how they see themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to do the Sadiq Khan thing. They have to shout, hey, Black Lives Matter. Although, interestingly, nobody's shouting that now that BLM came out in support of Hamas. But everybody is is out there. They're projecting th- those, those luxury beliefs. And they're moving leftwards, right? So what happens is the conversation gets shut down. And if you talk about some of the problems that that we have had. And I, by the way, I've polled Suella Braverman's comments. You know, she, she not only said multiculturalism has failed, she called the small boats an invasion. She said Britain is facing an invasion, mm. 112,000 people entering the country illegally, mainly by the way, young men under the age of 40. Um, large majorities of, of British people agree with her. Mm. So this isn't a kind of country issue. This isn't a, an elite issue. So I think Andrew Sullivan in the US has made this point, you know, we're living through the greatest radicalization of the elite class for half a century. And Mm. I think he's absolutely right. Mm. This is something comparable to the 60s and the 70s. And as the elite class are drifting away from everybody else, Mm. they're projecting those luxury beliefs on, on ordinary people. They're, you know, they're advocating beliefs that bring them no costs, that bring them more status from other elites, but which impose enormous costs on everybody else. Mass migration is one of them. It's not my colleagues at Oxford and, and Cambridge that are going to feel the negative effects of migration. They don't even know what ordinary migration looks like. They think migration is high-skilled, you know, high-wage, you know, high, wage, you know, uh, high, high um, highly selective PhD students, you know, from Silicon Valley coming into Oxford to do a PhD. They don't know what actual migration looks like, mm. and ordinary people do. Ordinary people who are out on the periphery of London or the big cities competing 20 people for a flat or seeing their wages squeezed or seeing their local factory shut down or seeing Sports Direct, which actually happened in Yorkshire. Sports Direct basically sacked a load of people and then brought in busloads of migrant workers because it was cheaper. You know, these are things that really, yeah, these are things that are actually happening. Labour MPs have written about exactly all of all of those issues that have happened in Yorkshire and elsewhere. Ordinary people know what mass migration means mm. the elite class instead are using it to project their luxury beliefs and this is where eventually something will crack and we're already seeing you know the rise of the reform party in british politics the rise of national populace elsewhere in europe and this is a symptom of the masses rebelling against this policy and it is a very conscious policy right mm. this is an important point people forget they think oh this is inevitable Mass migration was never inevitable. It was a conscious policy decision that was pushed through, I would argue, by big business, by the liberal graduate class in alliance to basically serve their own interests and to hell with everybody else. Mm. You mentioned the October 7th
0: massacre and the reaction on the streets of Britain. Obviously, we're in London every week since there have been marches through the streets Mm. of central London. And there's just been a report from the Community Security Trust that uh, anti-Semitism, there have been 4,103 anti-Semitic incidents in the UK in 2023, vast majority coming after October 7th, and the, the previous annual record had been 2,261, so a mm. mass increase. Do you think the anti-Semitism is an immigrant problem, as you sort of suggested, or is it a British problem? And I would say I have seen just as many white British people mm partaking in that British uh, in that anti-Semitism mm. as I have seen non-white people.
1: Yeah. Um the first thing to say is that I in the aftermath of October 7th, I, I cannot recall a time in my life when I'd been more ashamed actually to, to 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 live in Britain. The reaction in particular from our mainstream media, our national broadcaster, the BBC, falling over itself not to describe Hamas as a terrorist group, I thought was appalling. Um, and I said so on the BBC at the time, and I've not been invited back on since. Um, but I feel very strongly that we should be uh, showing as much solidarity and support for, for British Jews and Jews around the world as, as much as we can. Mm. Because what's happening clearly is we have what I've called a toxic combination of radical, a radicalizing cultural left which is imposing this identity politics on our institutions, which views Jews and the majority white group more generally as the oppressors and everybody else is a kind of morally righteous victim, um, in alliance with the growing number of radical extremist Islamists who are living and working in British society. And the numbers, I'm afraid, are not actually that small at all. We have tens of thousands of people living in Britain, living among us, who... Clearly, don't share our values. Mm -hmm. Who don't share our way of life. Who openly say, by the way, in large-scale surveys and polls, that they don't really want to integrate into British society. Ed Hussein wrote a really good book on this. Made a really strong impression on me. Actually, among the mosques, where he turned up spontaneously at a number of, I think about a hundred or so uh, mosques in in Britain, and he just turned up without Mm -hmm. any notice. And he then wrote about his experience. And he said, you know, it was very open in that book. He said, you know, we we have a serious problem in this society where we are we are in, we have open calls for segregation for islamist violence he makes the point that you can be a young british muslim and you can spend your entire day surrounded by let's say the the religion and the culture of islam and have no meaningful interaction with the rest of of society mm-hmm. we know many of these areas are highly segregated we we've seen that i mean i have spent much of my um, career in, in Northern England, in towns like Rochdale and Rotherham and Oldham and Burnley and Bradford, you know, and then when I see national commentators, liberal commentators saying, well, you know, the, the, the aftermath of October 7th doesn't tell us anything about multiculturalism because this is about, you know, student radicals from the 1960s. We've always had a anti-Semitism among these kind of left radicals. Uh, it's just a woeful response to what what, what is actually going on. Uh, what we are seeing, I think, is, is the collision of these two it's not either or it's both a radical left enabling and emboldening radical islamists who are given a free pass to go on these marches to say these horrific things uh to engage in in anti-semitism um and the reaction of our country to october 7th i've per- personally found it completely appalling and abhorrent i want i want hamas supporters to if they are not, if 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 we have foreign nationals voicing support for Hamas or glorifying Islamist terrorism, I want them out of the country. As do seventy-five percent of ordinary Brits. I've polled them on this. If a foreign national glorifies Islamist terrorism, should they be removed from the country? Most Brits, three quarters, say absolutely. And and so too, by the way. Do they say that about foreign nationals who commit crimes, like azidi the yeah. guy who Manchester threw, Arena bombing? Well, and, oh, sorry, Abdul Abdul yeah, was yeah, uh, the guy who threw acid over a young mum and two children. The yeah. Liverpool bomber, Manchester, uh, the, the family connected to the Manchester bombing. It, it, you know, we're at we're at drawing a line in the sand time. Yeah, and if you're a foreign national and you're committing crimes or you're glorifying Islamist terrorism. You should be removed from the country and i think you're either going to draw that line now or we're going to continue to sink into this complete and utter ridiculous situation so let's talk just on deportation then because there's a lot of that word
0: has been going around and it's easy enough to apply when it's foreign nationals but Mm. then let's take the example of samuel nabedi the manchester arena bombing who was a british citizen it was his father who'd come over from libya Mm. his father had been involved with a group Uh, trying to remove Gaddafi in Libya, Mm. but had been linked to jihadis, so it was a banned group in Britain. But Salman Abedi himself
1: was a British citizen. What do you do in that scenario? But in that scenario, he wouldn't have been in the country if we'd actually taken... right action that we should have taken with his older relatives like the senior hamas lieutenant
0: okay who was given
1: who was given housing in in north london and and also allowed to participate in the right to buy scheme meanwhile organizing you know terrorist plots if somebody is a british citizen i'm very very uh uneasy and i would i would say opposed to the idea of deportation but if somebody is a foreign national who's committing crimes um and uh has complete disregard for upholding our way of life and, our, and the rule of law then we should be doing whatever possible to remove those individuals from the country we have tried to do that uh that has been blocked by mainly by our membership of the european convention on human rights mainly by what we might call the the charity industrial complex that kicks into gear whenever we try and remove a rapist or a murderer or a oh, class yeah, a yeah, drug dealer the from the country types, yeah. as we almost did with a with a with a with a flight i think a year or two ago um, and that was blocked by the courts. Now, most Brits think this is absolutely ridiculous. My interpretation of taking back control was leaving any convention, international obligation that we have that prevents us from genuinely controlling who comes in and out of the country. If we'd actually been able to do that, Abdul as one example, who entered Britain illegally who applied for asylum twice, was rejected twice, went on to commit a sexual offence, a serious sexual offence, then applied for asylum for a third time, was given asylum because a priest signed off on the uh, request saying that he converted to Christianity, well, then he wouldn't have gone on and thrown acid over a mother and two kids if we'd actually had an asylum system that works. Here's just one stat, okay? We mentioned earlier on people coming over on the small boats. We've had 112,000 people since 2018. We have removed 1.3% of those people from the mm. country. That 1.3%, okay? And most of those were Albanians, okay? We have not come close to dealing with the illegal migration issue because we are stuck in a legal quagmire. We are stuck in a sort of you know, charity, industrial complex that we cannot seem to, to, to cut ourselves off from. And this will only get worse under a Labour government, maybe two Labour governments. Let's see what happens. There is no viable plan within either of the main parties for actually dealing with this issue of illegal migration and exiting the ECHR, which we need to do, and reform the Human Rights Act and the Equalities Act so we can genuinely control who is in the country and who isn't. Because underlying this, Winston, is a really important principle. We either prioritize the safety and the security of British people or we prioritise the rights of illegal migrants. Mm-hmm. I'm with the British people. That's the choice I've made. That's a principle in my personal politics. But I think many people out there can sense the opposite is true, and they're right to think that way, because we do have an asylum system that's completely broken. Yeah. So, look, seeing as you're on this topic, I want to know what the Matt Goodwin policies are. Yeah.
0: Deport foreign nationals who uh, commit crimes. Commit crimes. Yeah. Um, leave the ECHR, yeah. which has blocked the Rwanda deal.
1: Did you support the Rwanda deal? I support the Rwanda deal. I still support the Rwanda deal. So, by the way, does everybody... Well, I wouldn't say everybody, but many important people within the security services who understand the nature of the problem. So you've got Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson as well, saying, look, the only way you're going to solve the illegal migration problem is by having an active deterrent, okay? You can have as many security vessels and police vessels and surveillance vessels in the channel. You can be smashing the gangs all day long in northern France but it's like whack-a-mole. Every time you remove one, another one pops up, right? Because it's not hard to get a dinghy and a torch and a few life jackets and there you go, right? So the Labour Party's plan of let's not do anything like Rwanda, let's just smash the gangs, it's ridiculous, it's not going to work. I've not met anybody working on the small boats problem from a legal perspective or a security perspective who thinks the Labour plan is going to work. So Rwanda.
0: Can you unpack the Labour plan for me a little bit? The Labour plan
1: is don't have a deterrent. Don't have a third country deterrent. Don't send people to Rwanda if they enter Britain illegally. Focus your efforts on smashing the people smuggling gangs who are mainly operating in Belgium and France. And if you just focus on smashing the gangs, people won't be helped to cross the channel in the dinghies. That's basically the Labour plan. Nobody who has actually worked on that issue thinks that is a viable plan, okay? What you need as australia and elsewhere has shown is an active ongoing deterrent which sends a big loud message to every would-be illegal migrant around the world if you go to britain they will put you on a plane to another country within a few days of you arriving and that country happens to be in this case rwanda mm. now the liberal commentariat are up in arms about rwanda how could we do this mate? Mo- More Brits support the Rwanda policy than oppose it, right? Mm. Um, Again, you know, the public opinion or the views of the elites are not reflected in the views of the masses. People don't want to be living with this problem. They don't want to be spending six or seven million pounds every day on hotels for illegal migrants and asylum seekers. They want the problem fixed. So what you need, my plan, Matt Goodwin's plan, You need an active deterrent that works, right? The the moment you arrive in Britain illegally, you are put on a plane and you go to Rwanda or wherever to have your application processed, okay? And if you are, are, uh, if it's um, accepted, then you can come back to Britain and, you know, um, but if it's not, which in most cases it won't be, you can either stay in that third country or you can go back to where you came from, or maybe you could stay in France, which is a a safe country. Meanwhile, we need a complete root and branch reform of the Home Office, which has consistently shown itself to be incapable of managing the illegal migration issue, which has also become highly politicized. If you're a civil servant and you're threatening to strike because you're being asked to work on a government policy that you disagree with, which did happen in the civil service. We had civil servants saying they wouldn't work on the Rwanda policy because it undermined their own politics. Well, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be in the civil service, right? And we need a root and branch reform of the Home Office. We will need to reform the Human Rights Act, uh, modern slavery legislation, and leave the European Convention on Human Rights in order to allow us to be a genuinely sovereign self-governing nation that can control who comes in, who comes out. And if those people hurt the British people, if they commit crimes, they are immediately removed from the country. This is what, let's say, let's call it Fortress Britain, right? Let's actually have a serious migration policy that is suitable for what we're facing in the world today in 2024, not What was made for the aftermath of World War II, when we didn't really have global refugee shifts, anything like what we're dealing with today. Now, if you look across the European Union, Schengen, the free movement area, is dead. Borders are going up all over the place, right? So when people say, how could you possibly do this? Everybody is slowly converging on the same conclusion. Europe is going to need a lot of third country deterrence. It's going to need stronger borders. It's going to need stronger leaders, who are actually serious about protecting people within their countries. And we're going to need, on top of all of that, a much more serious response to how we're going to manage newcomers within our society. Sweden is the, probably the best example of this. Mm. To, to liberals listening, I would say, if mass migration is such a success story, if Western societies are capable of integrating this kind of change at this speed, then please explain to me what on earth has happened in Sweden. That's my challenge to any liberal listening to this podcast, because I've been to Sweden and I've met people on the left and the right and in the center. And I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't say to me, our experiment with mass migration has been a failure. Mm. They all say that now because they have gang violence out of control They have highly segregated neighborhoods. Did you say it was at 8% Muslim population? In 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 Sweden, Sweden, it's going to go from 8% to closer to 30 31% by 2050 Mm. if they maintain high ongoing rates of migration. Now, Swedish politics has been completely upended. They've moved sharply to the right. Even the left has come out and said... They're not going to get away with the. Uh, they're not going to get rid of the national populist uh, hardline policies on migration because even the left, lots of people on the left now say this experiment with mass migration has been a disaster. We've got children in mainly immigrant gangs running around Sweden, throwing grenades at buildings. I mean, this is a very serious issue. This has been written about extensively. Uh, Paulina Noiding, among others, who have who have done a very good job of explaining what is happening in Sweden. So my challenge to any liberal listening is, if this is such a success story, why is that happening? Why is a country like Sweden doing a U-turn at 100 miles an hour and saying this is not the right approach for a Western Society, Denmark too. By the way, I mean Denmark has been much more restrictive, but Denmark has has basically come come forward with a with a whole range of new integration policies. They're knocking down um, segregated apartment buildings. They're not allowing the children of migrants to go to schools that are full of um, minor children from minority backgrounds. They're doing some really tough stuff mm. to try and ensure that they can hold on to that shared sense of values and shared sense of identity. But at the end of the day, as I said earlier, integration is fine, integration policy. But if you're running mass migration at this level at this speed, integration policy ain't going to be enough, right? It's just not going to be enough to hold everything together. Uh, and that's where I get that's where I get anxious about where Britain is going. Not not over the next fifty years, but over the next ten years. Mm. You know, as I say, we're not even talking about how we're going to manage this social contract. And 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 last point. Most people out there haven't even realized it yet. There was a great study in early 2024, and I asked the Brits, can you estimate what the level of net migration is in the country today? What's your guess? The average estimate among ordinary voters was that we have a net migration rate of 70,000. The actual rate is 700,000. So Joe Bloggs out there hasn't even realized what's happening you mentioned
0: social contracts and I want to talk about social cohesion. And as you make the point, we need to talk about borders and migration control before we talk about assimilation and migration, uh, is integration. But I do want to talk about assimilation and integration. It seems like it's an important point. Just when you're talking about Sweden, I was thinking, at, and, and, and the growth it's going to change in, de- in demographics. Do you think, I guess I'm asking as a political, you're a political scientist. Mm. Is there a certain percentage of a, a, a core culture yeah. that a nation needs for cohesion? And if is there a line, uh, is there a percentage point or a line at which point a, a, a nation crosses it, there is no point of return?
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm not a demographer, so that that's probably more of a question for a demographer or the population scholar. What I would say is the kind of change that European societies are going to see between now and 2050 is going to be pretty much unlike anything they've seen before and it's going to be a kind of migration that is not just going to be economically challenging but is going to be challenging in terms of religion in terms of culture in mm. terms of identity i think france is a good example here you can see the way in which their evolving migration story has rapidly now um, uh, tilted into some very serious debates about national security islamist terrorism of sort of ongoing low-level low level violence is essentially what we're seeing Uh, the normalization of teachers being beheaded of um you know serious acts of crime where we sort of shrug our shoulders and say well we're kind of used to that now you know and we're starting to see that in the uk as well and i think when you're looking at the kinds of shifts that we're going to see they're going to be very pronounced and you know one of the things that i always come back to is you know in, in essence you don't need large numbers what what often brings about change are small numbers of highly radical committed people Right, and whether that's on the radical left, where you get a kind of you know fifteen percent of radical progressives in Britain, about fifteen percent of Britain is made up of radical progressives. Um, you know they are utterly committed to their new religion. To... You only
0: need a few thousand people for a Bolshevik revolution. Right,
1: exactly. Yeah, and and I think on the other side too, you know the radical Islamists that are forcing MPs out of office that are basically you know uh, engaging in 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 fraud or leading you know child sexual exploitation rings in northern england and so on i mean you know you only need a small number of people to really make a society feel unsafe uncaring dangerous and divisive Mm. um and i'm you know obviously you can tell i i'm deeply concerned about it's not actually the pace and scale of the change that we're going to see i'm more concerned about the complete failure of our leaders to even be honest with people about where we are and what's coming so on
0: assimilation integration mm. if i can talk now a bit more philosophically yeah how does a liberal country we a liberal country mm. tolerate people who mm. won't tolerate other peoples and i guess this is one of the cultural mm. questions questions we have to ask about culture and and migration and immigration and Talking about British values, like you said earlier in this conversation, we don't really talk about what British values are. In fact, British values are kind of shut down mm. and, and, and and degraded. What are the British values? What what are the things that we need to say? This is what it is to be British. Yeah. These, these are the standards that you have to meet if you come in. And then I guess there would be mm. a policy question there as well, yeah. which is. What do, do we have standards for people to come into the country? Mm. You already have to speak English fluently, let's say. Or you have to, in America, they have a system where you have to answer these crazy questionnaires that even Americans wouldn't, mm. you know, wouldn't pass these, these tests they did if you want to get a green mm. card. What what would you think should be the, the mm. test here? How do we do it in Britain?
1: Well, I think, firstly, that the era of Britain being tolerant of people who are not tolerant of us needs to end and what i mean by that is the very vague abstract conversation that we like to have with ourselves about britishness being about inclusivity diversity fairness tolerance things that to be frank are pretty meaningless when oh, it comes sorry, to debates are... like 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 this let me just let me just finish though we've had over the years repeated attempts to frame britishness from New Labour and Tony Blair in 1997 through to David Cameron, attempts to reframe Britishness around very vague, abstract concepts, which I don't think are particularly well suited for the kind of era and changes that we are now living in. So at, at a minimum, if you do not uphold and respect the rule of law, if you do not respect... Um, the sort of British cultural um, characteristic of of fair play, of playing by the rules, of upholding, um, you know, social norms and standards in society. Um, if you are openly denigrating um, our institutions, the symbols of our ways of life, um, then those people, those kinds of people, you know, should either... Um, you know be uh we need a new policy framework for for integrating those people but more of those people should not be encouraged into the country would be my view we yeah, have but, to draw a okay, line
0: but we have a british tradition of criticizing you know there's a british tradition of criticizing the monarchy that goes back centuries that we uh, there's a british... i'm not
1: saying criticizing the monarchy i'm saying if you are a engaging institution, if institution. you are if you're if you're engaging in in criminality, if you're breaking the law, if you're engaging in the industrial scale rape of young white working class girls in northern towns, and you have clearly not integrated or assimilated into the British way yeah, of life, that, by that point, we need yeah no well is it? I mean, we need a much more robust policy response to those violations of who we are. So we need for as a, at a minimum a much stronger legal and judicial system that that makes it clear there are consequences for breaking uh, the rule of law and breaking expectations about what it means to be in this country. And I would argue the criminal system is not doing that. If you go through all of those cases of, of as I say, mainly Pakistani Muslim men who were engaged in those gangs, I don't think the sentences were anywhere near hard enough. Mm. I think they should have been given you know, extensive custodial sentences. Um, those are Those are examples, and I come back to those examples because they really do bring to life the problems that we have. With multiculturalism as a as a society, if you're glorifying Islamist terrorism on the streets of London, we there need to be consequences. There need to be visible, serious consequences in order to project to everybody else that we have an expectation around integration. And I don't think we have been doing that. And I don't think also, by the way, just saying well to be British is to be welcoming of diversity doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it but doesn't sorry, mean that anything. That at all. The
0: fundamental British value, like the liberal. Uh, all the liberal tracts and the liberal acts of the 17th century Mm. and after the religious wars, and that is fundamental to British values. The the point is that that is not all it is. There's a lot more to it. There's a history, like you mentioned earlier. There's the
1: language that you mentioned There's a tolerance, but there's not a tolerance. There there is a tolerance, but there's not been a tolerance when it comes to violating the rule of law and violating... um, you know, but you the know. problem
0: then, and this is what this is what Oriana Falachi called liberal is, you can say, "Oh, the rule of law." But then, if you believe in Sharia law, you can't accept the rule of law because Sharia law will always come before it. But the li- liberal British policy of tolerance means that we'll accept people into Britain who don't believe in the rule of law. So, how do how do you at the border say if you don't believe in the rule of law? They'll just say, "Yeah, whatever I believe, and I will come in." Like, how do you actually? Well, it's it? the same.
1: Actually... I think it's the same question for how do we. How do we know whether you know the church, for example, in allowing people to convert to Christianity who are clearly not genuine? That's a terrible scandal. I was reading an article uh, this
0: morning that one pastor in South Wales baptized 500 people, asylum seekers specifically, mm. who uh, said they wanted to convert. And as soon as he'd done the sorry done the conversion, they
1: disappeared and never saw them again. But I think as a society, we need we're going to need to seriously upgrade our expectations of. Integration and what it means and what we're going to expect of people uh, when they enter into our society and, and to ensure that there are consequences when people violate the rule of law and when they violate you know, procedures and institutions that make us who we are. Mm. I mean, if, if, if you're, as I say, if you're glorifying Islamic State, if you're engaging in open criminality, if you know, y- there have to be much more serious consequences. We have to start drawing a line in the sand because I do think on many of these issues we have been too liberal. You know, yes, of course, we've always been liberal, but we've not been liberal to the point of allowing people to undermine who we are as a society, as a country. And I think we've lapsed into that now. You know, when we're giving, you know, senior lieutenants in Hamas the ability to to operate within here without any consequences, or you know, IS supporters, we've not we've not we've not been anywhere near as tough as we should have been. And when now we're we're facing the consequences of that.
0: One thing I I notice is a a a guy called Dylan Hussein, Dilly Hussein, I should say, who uh, outspoken, uh, uh, I'd say, has come out very strongly anti-Israel, would be putting it neatly, perhaps, or nicely. Uh, But one thing I noticed is that he said that Britain is a secular country, and that's just not true. We're a Christian country, and it might be true that a minority of the country actually are Christian, but our values are Christian values, and I Mm. think it's very important to assert that we are a Christian country, mm. do you think we're a Christian country?
1: Well, we're certainly sh- we we are, and we're certainly shaped and influenced by our Christian heritage. But at the same time, I look at large-scale surveys of the population today, Gen Z, Zoomers, one percent identify with the Church of England, one percent. Mm. Um, you know, we've we've never seen that before. We we have. We're not practicing. We're not active Christians. Most people would say, yeah, you know, on balance, Britain's a Christian country. But, um, but the sharp decline in religiosity or Christian uh, faith um, is very clear in the data. So too, by the way, is a sharp decline in, in other aspects of Britishness. You know, for example, um, pride in our national identity among Gen Z has collapsed. Mm. Um, support for the monarchy. A symbol of who we are, right? Whatever your views on the monarchy, it is an important symbol of who we are. Support among Gen Z much lower than mm. than other generations. Uh, look at Israel and uh, and Gaza. Uh, the views among Gen Z again very different from older generations. Now people might say, "Well, Matt, that's a cohort effect, and over time they'll 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 change and their views will evolve." Maybe, but there's another view, which is these are the kids that have gone through the primary, secondary, university education system who have been exposed to a very openly political view of the world uh, and we're not we're not we don't know what's going to happen in the years ahead but we can see that gen z are more left wing than than any generation in the past in our recorded history we've never had an age divide in politics like we've got today where only 8% of gen z are planning to vote conservative we didn't have that in the 70s the 80s and 90s this is new mm. we don't know where that's going and i think partly you know religion plays into that As well, and more fundamentally, it plays into the deeper question of who are we? I mean, if we're not an openly, actively Christian country or a country that is proud of who we are, proud of our institutions, then what are we? Mm. What is actually going to hang us together? We're going to need a lot more than, hey, diversity is our strength. That's going to be our unifying thread. That's not going to be sustainable. That's not going to be enough of a story. To hold all the disparate parts together, we're struggling even to hold the union together. Never mind holding together a, a, a rapidly diversifying society along ethnic, racial, sexual, gender lines. Mm. Right, it's going to be very, very difficult to do to do all of that.
0: Let's talk about. We've already covered some of the Tories' mm. failures, mm. but just on specifically on immigration. On immigration and the, the Tories. This is this is important numbers that that need to be <clears throat> to be stated. We're spe- spending se- the taxpayers spending seven million pounds a day. That's mm. approximately five point six million a day on providing hotel accommodation for asylum seekers, and a further one point two million a day is spent providing accommodation for Afghan refugees. Mm. Specifically, the Bibi Stockholm uh, fiasco, despite being a PR triumph for the Tories, uh, I'm being sarcastic in case that wasn't clear. Uh, it cost. The taxpayer twenty two million pounds. Mm. It's they've 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 only got themselves to blame. We we can say oh it's a failure of Christianity. No, the reason they're not voting conservative is because from every angle you look at it, the Tories have absolutely
1: fucked up. Mm. Yeah, I mean I hate the Tories now. I mean I used to be <laughs> used to be pretty supportive of the Conservatives. Um, it's it's actually worse than those numbers. We are spending more on our broken asylum system than we are spending on levelling up all of northern England, okay? Uh, if you look at the money that we're, we're sending into small towns, to areas in, you know, Yorkshire, the northeast and northwest, this was the signature policy after Brexit. We were going to level up the regions. We're now spending more, about £4 billion a year, on our broken asylum system than we we're spending on levelling up those those northern towns. Now, now, why is this? Well, the answer is the Conservatives basically put the pedal down on mass immigration. They liberalized the entire system. Boris Johnson was a bohemian liberal. He was not a conservative. He even removed the requirement for British companies to advertise jobs in Britain before they advertise them overseas. He opened up the university system to basically a massive Ponzi scheme that allows people from India, Nigeria, and China to come over for a year to then get access to the labor market and then basically stay. The whole... You know, economy basically has been completely shafted by the Conservative Party's inability to understand what Brexit was all about. Most people who voted for Brexit want migration, net migration, to be around a hundred thousand a year, right? They, they, most Brits say, yeah, we need some immigration, and I'm one of them. We need some immigration for the nhs for for social care for the economy probably somewhere around 50,000 to 100,000 right not 700,000 so the conservatives basically continued the cultural revolution that was started by tony blair in 2004 which was a, a cultural revolution anchored in mass migration so there is nothing now separating labor and the conservative party on this there is a new big consensus which is mass immigration Weak borders alongside big state, high tax, London centric economy. Neither of them are basically saying anything different from that, which is why, if you look at what's happened to the Conservative electorate since 2019, it's imploded. Mm. Now, while every other centre-right or or radical right party around the world is doing really well, from Trump's numbers in the US, to Marine Le Pen in France, to the Sweden Democrats, to Georgia Maloney, why are the Tories completely tanking? Yes, part of the story is 14 years of being in government. That is a big part of the story. Inflation is another part of the story. But actually, it's also about a party that doesn't really understand who's voting for it anymore, Mm. doesn't understand how to talk to working class voters, to people who haven't gone to university, to cultural conservatives who actually want to preserve this country, who want to have something to pass on to their children. So what's happened is, you know, what Boris Johnson pulled off was that Brexit realignment. About 75% of Brexit voters voted for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, right? 75%. That's phenomenal. Mm. Remarkable. Completely locked down that Brexit vote. That number today is 40%. Right. Mm-hmm. So the Brexit voters have run for the hills. They've mm-hmm. like, what, what the hell's going on with this party? I thought they were going to give me lower migration and strong borders. And they basically lost control of the borders and given me mass migration. What's mm-hmm. going on here? So now we're back to where we were in the early 2010s, a reform party uh, with Nigel Farage as his honorary president. Basically, we're back to the early 2010s with the UK Independence Party. Reform is now averaging over 10% in the national polls. It's probably going to hit the Tories hard at the next general election. Why? Because they are saying to conservative voters, you deserve better than this. Mm-hmm. You deserve the end of mass migration, no more net zero policies, strong borders, uh, investment in areas outside of London. These are all the things that conservatives said they do. Boris Johnson was very clear he said, lower the overall numbers, level up Britain. And then he did the opposite with Dominic Cummings, by the way, who also signed off on lots of those changes. So basically, look, the Conservative Party is the problem. It is the problem. I've spent the last 20 years slowly coming to the conclusion that Peter Hitchens was was right. The Conservative Party is the problem. OK, if you want to change Britain, if you want to change politics in this country, we are going to need a different kind of politics a different movement i'm not saying that movement is the reform party i'm not saying it's any other kind of party that we have but what is clear is we need a different movement in britain that is much closer to the values and the beliefs and the aspirations of a large majority of people out there who to be blunt have been screwed over by the post-brexit government
0: you're absolutely right about, I'll, I'll just say that we, at the time of speaking, we're just on the back of a by-election where there are four party In Kingswood got 10.4% of the vote and in Wellingborough, 13%. So They should have many. got twice that.
1: They should have got twice that.
0: Why, why do you mean should have?
1: Reform, reform should be winning these by-elections, such as the level of apathy and disillusionment they out are there in they? a country. Because I think they've got a number of problem, problems. Most people don't know who they are, right? They've got this new name reform. Nobody knows what the hell that is. Nobody knows who Richard Tice is, the leader. They don't have enough money because the Brexit donors haven't come back into the game yet. So they've got a number of structural problems. Now, if you put a decent leader, it's not, I'm not being critical of Richard Tice. i sure he's a very nice man and he's, sort of, you know, he's doing well in these by-elections. But if you put somebody with charisma on top of that party and you give them 20, 30 million pounds and you maybe change their policies a little bit, a few tweaks here, there and, and everywhere, um, they would be, I think, getting up to about 20, 25%. Someone decent,
0: you mean Farage?
1: I mean, probably pop- no, candidates? no, I don't actually mean Farage, actually, because I think as a country now, I think we're at a point where, look, Nigel Farage, I know Nigel Farage very well, and I've been interviewing him on and off since 2011, okay? I followed all the UKIP campaigns in detail, I was on the ground, I followed the referendum, I know the Nigel Farage show intimately. He is, without question, the most influential politician of our era, Right. Because if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have had the Brexit referendum, and we wouldn't have voted for Brexit, and we wouldn't have had Boris Johnson, etc., etc., etc. So much of British politics basically stands on Farage, right? And in the history books, they will see him as a, a very influential person. So, so none of what I'm saying is is a, is a criticism of Farage, but what I what I think is, if you're serious about bringing about change in this country now, and by that I mean genuinely reforming Westminster, genuinely reforming the political economy, genuinely reforming issues like migration, genuinely keeping the British people safe and secure, we are at a point where you cannot just look at Nigel Farage to have the answer. What I think the country is going to need is a coalition of people, including people from the millennials and Gen Z, new generations, who are capable of building something serious, that's an alternative to the big two parties, that is well-funded, and is much more in line with where the British people are. That's not to say that that might not involve somebody like Nigel Farage, but it is to say that we aren't where we were in the 2010s. We've got a different set of problems facing us than what we had in the 2010s, and I think those problems are going to need different solutions. And if you look across Europe today, the insurgents that are breaking through the challenges that are breaking through, the populists that are breaking through are often younger, smarter, very hungry, very clever, very sophisticated with social media and so on, having an enormous impact uh, in their respective countries. Um, And I think probably Britain needs to go through some kind of similar transition. If it's if it's going to actually shake up this broken consensus
0: mm. on the issue of consensus, I I'm picking up on what I think might be a slight contradiction, or at least a yeah. contradiction, what I've understood in what you said. You describe a sort of new consensus in Westminster, mm. but you've also earlier said that Labour drifted more radical mm-hmm. left. Yeah, and so. How can yeah. those things be squared? Exactly?
1: Well, they can be squared because the conservatives haven't done anything about it. I mean, if you look at what's happened with the radical left with the imposition of, let's say woke ideology, gender identity, critical race theory, the identity politics, all the all the divisive stuff we've imported from America, I would argue, which is also now about to go on steroids with a labor government at the end of this year, labor are very clear in what they're going to do, teaching kids white privilege, distributing government contracts on the basis of race and ethnicity this is not british this is like dark american culture war stuff we don't want this in our country but labor are going to put the pedal down on it what have the conservatives genuinely done to push back against a cultural revolution that was started under tony blair and gordon brown what have they really done so i gave you know let's imagine this you, you you've given boris johnson um, an 80 seat majority in 2019 okay he was unlucky he had the covid pandemic and then he had the war in ukraine fine he's got an 80 seat majority ordinarily you might have expected a conservative leader to say okay now we've got an opportunity let's reform the legislative foundations of the new labor project all the stuff blair and brown brought in between 97 and 2010 all the stuff that is at the root of many of the challenges and the problems that we're talking about the Equalities Act, Human Rights Act, um, you know, mass immigration, all the th- decisions that New Labour took. The Conservative Party could have come in in 2019 and said, we have got a mandate for basically revolution. We've got a mandate to change the zeitgeist. Blair understood this and Thatcher understood this. That's why they were so good. They were conviction politicians who understood they were there to cha- to change the zeitgeist. Johnson never understood that, and nor, by the way, did Cummings. All Cummings ended up talking about was, "Well, we need to reform the civil service. We need to reform government departments." You've said well, of mean, course we do. Reform the civil of course we do. We need to be far more ambitious than that. They came in with an 80-seat majority, you know, biggest majority that we've had for, you know, for the Conservatives have had since the, the Thatcher era. They should have come in and said, "Right, let, let's let's go to town. Let's let's reform the Equalities Act. Let's change the Human Rights Act." Let's change the foundations that this country actually sits on. Let's have a completely new growth strategy. Sure, reform the civil service. Yeah, interesting, whatever. But be much more ambitious. How often do governments have an 80-seat majority? And the whole princi- whole purpose of conservatism is, is to push back against the tide. And they, they did the opposite. So what we ended up with is Gillian Keegan as education secretary, basically failing to change the way we're teaching kids about gender identity theory or critical race theory which by the way have no basis in science and are highly contested or we have you know penny morden saying we need to be nicer to trans people or whatever it's it's not a serious political pushback to what you would have expected from a conservative party with an enormous mandate for change that's what 2019 was about it's an enormous mandate for change and they completely completely screwed it up and they're not going to get a chance like that again i don't think uh, the next big chance will be for labor and i run you know tony blair will be standing behind keir starmer and when keir starmer wins a majority which the current polling suggests he will win a very big majority you bet labor will see it as a changing change of the zeitgeist you bet they'll go all in there'll be constitutional reform there'll be votes for 16 year olds there'll be changing education policy there'll be changing our relationship with europe going back the other way there'll be more devolution now, labor i think when they win big they have always understood that is the time to go radical. That is the time to really go hard. Conservatives, or the current generation of conservatives, uh, have looked lost and timid and intellectually weak. They've lacked conviction. This is why I think we, you know, there is a genuine question over whether we're living through the death of conservative, the Conservative Party because they don't really seem to know what to do or what to say. And they've squandered this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to change the foundation of politics.
0: Death of the Conservative Party. But The way you describe and you project the future of Britain could be the death of Britain. How pessimistic are you? What's five years of Labour going to do for England, for Britain? Well,
1: I think we're basically turning into Canada. I mean, that's basically what's happening. We're becoming a kind of hyper-liberal... very very diverse society in the hands of a small ruling elite that is holding values and beliefs that are not shared by much of the rest of the country um and i think we are you know we are going to see many of the changes that were introduced over the last 25 years accelerate and become a much more visible part of everyday life and i think that will become increasingly obvious to British people over the next five to ten years. I think they will see the pace of change and we will become a more divided society. Because the things, for example, that, that the Labour government are going to bring in are not really about unifying us at all. Uh, it's, it's it's about division along the lines of race, sex and gender. It's about giving government contracts out on the basis of race and ethnicity. It's about more migration legal and illegal Uh, labor do not see those issues as a priority uh and it is a sort of uh, more of a sectarian style politics which is not going to rein in the radical left i suspect will not rein in radical islamists um and will certainly not be upfront and honest and challenging when it comes to the things we've talked about on this podcast like the fact that multiculturalism isn't working i mean you can drive for half an hour north of London and it would become immediately obvious this is not working to lots of people. Um, there'll be no serious discussion of that or how to fix it. Um, and I think therefore we're going to be in... Well, the one cause for optimism is that we may end up on the, on, on the other side of politics on the right of politics, we may end up having a more serious attempt at reconfiguring The right of british politics that is potentially one thing that may come from a very heavy conservative defeat i mean there's an argument now that you really actually want labor to win as 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 strong as as they can and, and get as big a majority as they can because the worse the conservatives do the, the 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 better uh the chance of actually getting a reconfiguration of the right if the conservatives fall to 100 to 150 seats which current polling suggests you know they might do um then that opens up an enormous opportunity to have something different to have an alternative to the conservatives a bit like canada in 1993 when a reform a party called reform reshaped politics from the right replace the progressive conservatives, they called themselves the progressive conservatives, and change Canadian politics. And that ultimately you know, led to, to a reconfiguration of conservatism. Uh, we may see some kind of attempt at that. We may see the emergence of a new party. Um, that's, I think, a glimmer of hope, actually, in this country, that, that the conservatives have done things so badly, have managed this so badly, you know, the old joke among pollsters was you'd never see the Conservative Party go below 30% in the polls because that's when you get to all the pro-Conservative pensioners in the retirement homes who have dementia and they don't know any different. <laughs> they don't know what's going on in the country, right? But here here we are, the Conservatives are averaging 24%. We've never seen this before. I mean, the Conservative Party literally is just is collapsing before our eyes. Mm-hmm. The swings that we're seeing at by-elections recently, the biggest in post-war history for mm-hmm. any incumbent government. I mean, this is a party that is like turned off the entire country. Yeah. And it isn't just party gate. It isn't just Boris Johnson. It isn't just Liz Truss. It is about a party that doesn't understand who's voting for it, yeah. why they're voting for it and what people want to see in the country. So that's my kind of glimmer of hope here. The worse the Tories do, the better the chance for those of us who actually want to reshape British politics in some way. It's amazing
0: way. to think that only five years ago, when Boris Johnson won that like, the hubris in that that win and the, the kind of the kind of assumption that they'd you know conquered the country, and completely not appreciating how capricious the voter really is, and well, how quickly that's turned around.
1: Yeah, I now give my respect to all those people at the time who had worked with Boris. And said, you know, this is gonna be a complete disaster. You know, there's a number of people in, in in mainstream media and they were they were they were on the money. But but the other thing about 2024, briefly, is we're in the midst of an experiment. So what we what I think we're gonna see, the British Tories are gonna to collapse. And I think Trump's gonna end up back in the White House. And so what you've got is a tale of two realignments. You've got one in America where the Republicans really understood who was voting for them, working class, non-graduates you know, the suburbs, the small towns, fly over country, campaign hard on immigration, campaign hard on border security, take on the woke, take on the institutions, right? Now say what you want about Trump, is he a threat to democracy, etc.? They've held that realignment and now they've got a credible chance of beating Biden and going back into the White House versus the Tories. Completely lost the workers, completely lost the non-graduates, completely lost non-London England. Every Red Wall seat on current polling will go back to the Labour Party, mm. At the next election so what you're seeing is a tale of two realignments and the Tories are going to be one of the only right-wing parties I say right wing loosely they're going to be one of the only right-wing parties that are actually going to lose this year because Europe in the spring is going to go sharply right Le Pen's going to do well Wilders is going to do well Maloney's going to do well Vox in Spain's going to do well Chaga in Portugal's going to do well Trump is looking very strong in the swing states certainly going to give Biden a run for his money and then the British Tories They're going to be sort of scratching their heads saying, gee, how did we go from giving the world a masterclass in how to win a realignment after Brexit to giving the world a masterclass in how to lose a realignment Mm -hmm. only five years later? Mm -hmm. And the answer is all realignments are about demand and supply. You can have a demand for a completely different politics, but you've got to supply it with something Mm -hmm. that is resonant to people. And the Tories, they had all the demand in the world and they gave people the opposite of what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And that is why they've collapsed seeing as we're
0: talking about migration it one of the things I'm very concerned about is people leaving Britain and I'm quite mm. curious, we always talk about the net numbers yeah. uh, net positive numbers, but who is it that's leaving? You remember after Brexit a lot of anti-Brexit people were saying "Oh, people are, people are, <laughs> yeah. are leaving the country or "No, people are no longer coming and, and, and it's hard to tell because Covid came in straight at the mm. same time and what exactly was happening there but I'm concerned that the aspirational that the entrepreneurial types, particularly the younger ones, the ones who haven't bought property, the ones who haven't built lives yet, Mm. will be like, you know what? Now I'm going to go to America know what yeah. no i'm going to go somewhere. i'll go to australia i'll go yeah, to new yeah. zealand well they won't go that
1: far they'll go they'll go to italy uh, which has just launched a, a new digital nomad visa or they'll go to portugal or you know they'll be down in Ventura with a laptop in a cafe i mean the great retreat you know what my students would call the great retreat right what does that mean 20 somethings just leaving britain huh. so why would i stay can't get on the housing ladder this country is going to the dog I mean, is
0: that already happening
1: yeah, lots of young people talk about the Great Retreat. You know, it's uh, Peter Hitchens has been advocating it for years. You know, so basically running around London saying to young people on every podcast, "Why don't you leave the country?" Right? And lots of people are saying that because the quality of life is deteriorating. Right? I've lived in Britain, Britain since 1981. I've travelled a lot, but I've I've been over you know over 40 years. The quality of life is deteriorating. Public services are deteriorating. The quality of leadership is deteriorating. We have no serious response or answer to the big challenges facing us from mass migration to crime to integration to who we are Uh, so what the birth birth rate rate is is 1.5 is 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 is, is going downwards we 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 don't know who we are we don't know what what we want we are not a serious country in many respects and that's saying something you know we have no serious growth we have declining gdp per head we have no productivity our mid-level cities compared to middle-level cities elsewhere in europe are, are nothing it's London or bust, basically, mm-hmm. right? We we can't seem to even get train lines in Northern England England to work the way they should, okay? So, of, of course, if you're 25 or you're 30 and you think, I've got good prospects, why wouldn't you go to Italy or Portugal or get, you know, 10, 20% tax rates? Why would you be here? The highest tax burden we've had pretty much in the post-war period. Um, also, with the sharpest decline in living standards in the, in the post-war period, or at least since 1955, why why would you stay mm-hmm. here? This is, and, and, and I think, Who's leaving? That's the interesting question because people are leaving. You know, of the one point two million that are coming in over the last two years, we've got hundreds of thousands going the other way. And the short answer is we don't know exactly who's going, but I bet my money that there's a lot of Brits that are saying, "I've had enough. I'm off." and And that's a shame. I mean, that's also about, and that's partly also about the 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 birth rates as well. I mean, when a when a society is not actively renewing itself. When there's such a collapse of confidence, when there's such a collapse of belief, that in itself speaks volumes, and I think that's what people can sense. I think that's what they can what they can see around them that the light that the light in the eye has gone 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 you know has been turned down.
0: It's very bleak.
1: Can I finish on a mm. more personal note? mm you have some very
0: controversial opinions, Matt
1: are they well, I would say they, everything I would say they're, everything they're, I've said today is shared by 60 to 75 percent of the british public yeah
0: and probably about two percent of the academy yeah sure so you are a a professor at the university of kent yes you're very public these opinions yes how you know i'm hearing constant stories about you know professors and uh, Mm. people getting cancelled for all sorts of reasons for not towing the woke line you've been vocally Pro-populist, anti-war, so certainly making the case for populism. Mm. Uh, uh, I said the people voting.
1: Yeah, I said the people voting for national populist parties have good reasons for doing so.
0: Right. You've at least given them a fair hearing. Yeah. Which almost no one else in universities will openly mm. do. So how is it? What is the story inside? You know, right at the beginning of this conversation, you talk about the the, the way universities are bringing in mm. a bunch of. Uh, people and I I imagine there's a whole system where they need foreign students in order to get the money of course what so what exactly is going on inside academy the academy what what's what's the story what's life like for you
1: well um the first thing I'd say is that many of the people who have been cancelled or chased off campus were friends of mine so the last I would say I I divide my career into um bb and ab so before brexit and after brexit (laughs) And by that, I mean 2016. So before Brexit, I had lots of friends and I got on with lots of people in academia and life was kind of easy and comfortable. After Brexit, I, <laughs> all of that sort of increasingly disappeared. Yeah. And I watched, you know, as you know the story, you know, Jordan Peterson disinvited from Cambridge, Kathleen Stock chased out of Sussex, Eric Kaufman basically harassed at Birkbeck, you know, go on and on. So I watched all of these people I know. I mean, you know, they, they, they're they good people. But what what I noticed was that... Um, you know, 90% of academics basically voted to remain in the European Union, 10% basically voted for Brexit. I came out publicly and said, I think we should implement the vote. It's what people voted for. Also, I don't think the EU is a democratic organization. I don't really want to be in that organization. I think we can do better than the European Union. I think Britain is a remarkable, special place. And I said that very publicly. So that obviously wound a lot of people up. And then when I started seeing non-conformist, gender-critical scholars being chased off campus and so on... I actually said, you know, we got to do something about this and ended up with a bunch of renegade academics passing or helping to push through and design the Higher Education Free Speech Act, which is one good thing the Conservative Party did. So now basically every university in the country has a legal duty to protect and promote um, free speech, free expression on campus. And if they persecute or harass people like me or Kathleen Stock or Eric Kaufman or whoever... They can be fined by a regulator, so now they know somebody is watching them. Why did we do that? Because we didn't believe the universities can be trusted to reform themselves. Now, this was before October 7th. This was like years before that. This is before we saw Harvard and MIT fall over themselves, struggling to condemn anti-Semitism on campus, Mm -hmm. right? This is before all of that. So we got ahead of it, and we said, like, we've got to do something here. Now, obviously, within the universities, that basically made me a bit of a pariah and i think there are two things basically academics hate loathe actually one is conservatives and the other is academics who have a very public profile (laughs) and go on the media so now imagine if you're a conservative (laughs) academic who goes on the media and has a public profile why do they
0: hate conservatives
1: um well it's the old saying that uh I know the whole country. Has conservatives, conservative party, conservatives think think liberals are misguided, and liberals think conservatives are evil. I mean, it's a basically it's a clash of visions. I mean, it's Thomas Souls, uh, you know, competing visions, and they do fundamentally think there is something evil about conservatism. But how,
0: why why are those people in the position to be educating students? Like, how have they ended well, up my to argument dominate the universities? Well,
1: I, and that's something that I think we should be fighting and and really working to change. That's why. Um, I don't actually agree with setting up parallel universities. Um, I know that people, you know, Neil Ferguson and others, have set up University of Austin. I think it's an important institution. In the UK, Eric Kaufman's just set up the Center for Heterodox Social Science at the University of Buckingham. I think that's a really important uh, initiative and i think people should look at it if There's they're interested in if, savannah georgia yeah. which is ralston college yeah ralston college the I, stephen blackwood I, and i think these are all really important things because it's about contributing to the ecosystem but i actually disagree that the future lies in setting up parallel institutions because ultimately what you're then saying is well liberals go here conservatives go there i would much rather us fight to re- try and reform some of these existing institutions while also strengthening the ecosystem right let's have some of these other entities but fundamentally we need to actually focus on saving and changing these institutions and one reason why on a personal note i don't think people came for me in a way they did go for people like kathleen stock and others um firstly i avoided the the kind of sex gender debate um because i don't work on it i don't research it but also i think i took a decision early on in that if you become very high profile the universities generally will will not go after you because they know there are going to be reputational consequences if they do that's so,
0: new right because that might not have been the case five years ago
1: um possibly I mean I, I yeah I remember talking with jordan Peterson about this I think there are two things you need to do if you want to say something countercultural in the universities one is you need to have financial insulation because people will come after you and they will try and counsel you I, good friends of mine former friends actively tried to do that to me and i know you've been through similar trials but, but actively tried to mm. basically get me sacked um you see, you need financial insulation but you also i think need profile so people know if they really do come after you there is going to be an almighty storm mm. and most university administrators at the end of the day will think i can't actually be bothered with that it's probably not in our interest to do Mm. that there was no great acceptance of viewpoint diversity like i i I know people are not around me saying we're gonna let matt say what he thinks because we think it's important and we believe in free speech i know there have been all kinds of low level campaigns and tactics to basically try and dislodge me but um ultimately if you've got financial insulation and you've got a profile you can basically withstand it there are enormous consequences though you won't be invited to events you find it harder to publish. You will get a really tough time when it comes to getting research grants. It's what what we call the chilling effect. Mm. So what you'll notice is people will just gradually start moving away. Mm. And you will become aware of the fact that you are a pariah. Now, if you believe in what you're saying, a lot of that stuff is completely manageable because you get strength from integrity and you get strength from being true to Your beliefs and who you are and i on a personal note i've yet to meet anybody who has. i kind of keep waiting for the day where where somebody's going to pop up and demolish all of my arguments and make me realize i've been really stupid and i've got something wrong and but it just doesn't happen and i think what what i'm trying to say is i've sort of gone up against what i would call this new religion like i've called it out on a lot in a lot of areas you know free speech universities migration and I, I, actually think at the end of the day, it's a bit like you know the emperor not wearing any clothes. I don't think the arguments are there. Mm. I really don't. And I, it, it is a, it, it's like a religion. And I've, I've sort of committed, you know, blasphemy, and so therefore I'm, I'm thrown out. Mm. And it's worse being an insider, becoming an outsider than being an outsider and always being an outsider. It's much worse. So the treatment, if you go on social media, you'll quickly see the sort of, you know if you've been an insider in, in the academy and you've you've become an outsider and, and a rebel or whatever, you know, they hate you twice as hard than mm. if you were already an outsider.
0: Why, why is that? Because you're well, one of theirs, be- you're an apostate.
1: Yeah, you've betrayed the cause, Yeah, you've called it out. And mm. so the intensity that comes with it, and I'm talking about, you know, these are people I spent a lot of my life with, you know, socializing, writing papers with, working with, who became Very ugly, immature, nasty bullies is how I would describe them Mm. to the point that I would not willingly, knowingly associate with them outside of if, unless I absolutely had to through work. Um, And and it's very unfortunate. how they were just
0: treating you personally. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Mm. Enormous, yeah. And I've seen that to friends and much more serious consequences. You know, people have lost their jobs. They've lost their livelihoods. I, I've been at dinner with professors in the U.S. who tell me, you know, they're taking all kinds of pills to go to sleep at night because yeah. of the harassment, because of the, that sort of the culture of intolerance. And it's always been there. You know, I mean, academics are notoriously um, jealous of one another. You know, they, uh, the old saying that they fight so hard because the stakes are so low. But then when you inject politics into it and you inject media into it, you know, a bit of fame bit of success god forbid mm. you know you write a best-selling author yeah. a best-selling book and you're a conservative and you're really fun. you know they hate <laughs> that they hate that yeah and you, you you just sense it walking around mm. students love it though yeah i oh, do they yeah they well, love it. students that. love it oh they like well,
0: every i i, I thought i'd have thought maybe that the students were even more progressive no i used you to even I, more of a no no it's the opposite i mean uh,
1: i used to teach a third year course and every time they came to me in the third year they would always say I've been really looking forward to this because I feel until now I've been getting the same view from everybody. Well, isn't that encouraging? Well, I think stud- I don't believe in this whole snowflake thing. I think students students are much more curious and intellectually resilient than we than we think.
0: Might um, there also be a rebel a rebellion against the generation above them that is, let's say, generation woke? so the new mm. the new generation below them seeing the flaws in all of that i that hope so
1: i i hope so they're also the covid generation you know they've been locked away and and you know there's some serious side effects that you can see you know their social skills are not up to much interpersonally you know they they're not they're not quite there but they are very curious and i think they've come into this world and they you know god i mean ukraine you know middle east yemen populism trump immigration i mean imagine you know absorbing all of this as an 18 19 year old and so they're curious they want to know what's going on but i think many of them do sense that the institutions have not quite delivered to the extent that they really should have should have delivered um so hopefully the tide is turning um
0: finally hope
1: for I, uh, the whole conversation, I've
0: been waiting I, for a whole for I've become stay. very, I've become so,
1: very, I've become much more pessimistic since my daughter arrived, to be honest. That's the change. So when you start thinking about actually, it's not about you, you know, it's not about you, it's about what, what's coming 20, 30, 40, mm-hmm. 50 years down the line. Mm-hmm. You know, the perspective kind of flips. So that's why I've become much more pessimistic and much more outspoken in trying to say to people, we have to get on top of these problems. Now, I don't care about perception oh, you know, that guy's this that guy's that for so, i don't care about any of that we have to actually resolve these problems long-term problems we've got to do it now mm. right we need a different politics asap have to get on board uh, and, and and fix these problems now
0: and as you said your opinions are held by the majority of the country as you, your polls shown again absolutely
1: and, again. and you see that on social media mm. yeah.
0: so we try to cover migration and immigration extensively is there anything you think we didn't catch in that i mean that there's i mean various other things i can think go. To the only about.
1: the only thing i would say is if you want to see how all this plays out just watch the next election because for one half of the country this is the issue in many respects the 24 election is an election on immigration for, for a large number of people that is their top priority. But
0: that doesn't make sense to me because why would you vote for the Labour Party if it was it was an it was an election no, on immigration because because what because we're going, policy we're, we're as not, you've described in this conversation mm-hmm. is even worse than the Tory. We're policy. not
1: going to see a lot of switching across. What we're going to see is a lot of apathy. We're going to see a lot of people staying at home. One of the key metrics at the next election is not going to be how many conservatives went Labour. It's going to be how many conservative voters stayed at home exactly the same thing happened in 1997. Everybody could sense what was coming. If you go back and you look at the data on 97, the reason Blair did so well was not just because he tapped into the kind of yearning for change. And he did remarkably well. Blair was a formidable politician, even if I disagreed with much of what he did. But look at those conservative voters. So many of them just stayed at home. They didn't bother. They knew the game was over. And we are seeing the same thing now in the by-elections, in the people who are switching across to reform or saying, you know, I'm not going to bother. And it's, I think in some ways, apathy is going to be that big winner. And from that apathy, to finish on a note of hope, I, you know, that is where maybe something emerges that people can genuinely get excited about and genuinely think, okay, Tories, no thanks. We did 14 years of that. Look at the crazy place that we're in as a result. Let's take a punt on something different.
0: On that tiny molecule of hope, I'm very happy to Uh, bring it to an end Matt thank you for speaking thank you for having me tell me uh, tell me and listeners where they can find you what you're up to next you've got an event in London that you should you should really tell we've got a
1: great debate on immigration March the 18th which is at the Emanuel Center Uh, that's with Constantine Kissin Uh, it's with Aaron Bastani really interesting thinker on the left uh, Polly Toynbee Guardian columnist and I'm writing on all these issues on Substack MattGoodwin.org and I'm writing quite a lot about migration because i think a lot of people aren't really talking about where that's going wrong um and we've got about 25,000 people like-minded people who realize you know the consensus is broken and we're trying to build a little space there
0: that emmanuel center event sounds mm. very important particularly as those are leading thinkers mm. on in opposition to what you've said um, absolutely in this conversation and i've tried to put some of those uh, counterpoints to you here but mm-hmm. i'm sure they will go even deeper so um i very much look forward to that event and um uh, it seems like it's the most important issue in the country so
1: and that's why we're trying to get a really you know robust debate going around it let's let's build this alternative ecosystem that's going on with the podcasts and the Substacks and the youtube shows and all that stuff let's build a different ecosystem
0: oh yeah well we didn't even talk about the media but that's that's a <laughs> yeah. reason for us to speak again matt goodwin a pleasure to speak to you
1: thank you thank you for having me thank you for listening
0: and watching the winston marshall show if you enjoyed that conversation you can find matt at mattgoodwin.org I ask again, humbly, that you like, share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And otherwise, I will see you next time.